Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to Motos and Friends, the weekly podcast brought to you by the editorial team at Ultimate Motorcycling. My name is Arthur Coldwells. In this week's first segment, editor Don Williams rides KTM's new 1290 Super Adventure R. This hardcore ADV bike is big, powerful, and a true expert-level machine. Interestingly, it has multiple points of adjustment within its highly capable electronics package, and Don discovered several big surprises where the bike changed personality completely. His is an intriguing look at one of the most capable off-road ADV bikes on the market today. In the second segment, I chat with Richard Hatfield, CEO of Lightning Motorcycles. This Silicon Valley-based manufacturer was founded in 2006, and having racked up several notable race victories, <laughs> including the Pikes Peak in 2013 with the late Carlin Dunn on board, Lightning have certainly dominated in racing terms. In another first, Lightning has just announced a new rapid charging battery technology, and that may well bring electric motorcycles into becoming real-world practical transport. <laughs> I guess we'll see. So, from all of us here at Motos and Friends, we hope you enjoyed this episode. So I'm intrigued to hear about it. Are there a lot of changes from previously? There are a lot of little changes. The bike didn't make a complete, you know, a complete makeover, although it did get a new frame, but a new frame and swing arm, although the new frame and swing arm are not radically different from what they had before. It's still the trellis frame. They moved the steering head back a little and lengthened the swing arm to change the handling around. And uh, so that that's probably the most significant change that, like I said, sounds big, but isn't you know, you, it's one of those ones where you have to ride the two bikes back to back to really get a sense of, of what the differences are, at least for me. And, uh, but then there, there are other changes. Uh, the, the big one, in a way, it's kind of funny to go to think of this as like the big change, but the big change is that they went to Bridgestone Adventure Cross AX41 tires. Now, if you're familiar with the adventure world, most adventure bikes you buy range from having like a 90-10 street dirt uh, tires with 90-10 street dirt bias to maybe 50-50 at best. That's the best you can hope for. And the uh, the Venturecross AX41s from Bridgestone are definitely more dirt than you're going to see pretty much on any adventure bike. You know, they're not quite full knobbies, which they can't be because ultimately the motorcycle weighs too much to have like, a, you know, you can't just take a, a knobby design for a motorcycle that weighs 250 pounds and, and slap it on a bike that weighs 550 pounds. <laughs> right. so, so these adventure bike tires have to have like that load rating, you know, and the ability to ride on the, the street also at high speeds. So that that stops them from being a full knobby. But this this tire, this AX41 really is a knobby style tire and it really works off road. And needless to say, the the 1290 Super Adventure R, and I'll just kind of call it the R because they have, they have, at this point, I should probably remind everybody that there's a Super Adventure R and a Super Adventure S. Uh, the big difference is the R has the 1821 pure off road tire, you know, wheel set, and the S is the 1719 that we're used to for kind of semi 
off-road adventure bikes. Okay. And just going right into this story, I can tell you, if you ride on the street and you're, you're, the, the extent of your off-road is going to be good quality, high quality dirt roads by the S because there's no reason to go uh, for the R, which is definitely designed to be ridden off-road in a in as, as serious a way as you can ride a motorcycle that big off-road. Okay. And this kind of reminds you of, uh, you know, riding adventure bikes is, is something of a philosophical thing. <laughs> All of the adventure bikes can do far more than you can do. And now that's always true on street bikes. It, it plays out differently on adventure bikes, especially off-road we're talking about. Because, you know, you could fly pretty fast on a, an adventure bike, but you have to be willing. On the street, you can ride and you don't have to really think about crashing. You know, it's crashing. It happens, but it's infrequent. And if you're crashing a lot on the street, you might want to rethink your, your hobby. But right. in, in, on the dirt, you know, you fall, you know, you fall. That's just the way it is. It's dirt. It's the, the attraction is bad and there's sand and there's all sorts of things that can make you fall. So you will fall. And uh, on an adventure bike, falling is much more significant than it is on a uh, dirt bike because mainly because of the weight. And so uh, you're also more likely to fall because of the weight. And when you fall, it'll be a harder fall because of the weight. <laughs> so right so when i'm when you ride the a bike like the super venture r you really have to you know you every every person has kind of their own range of calculations to make all the time it's like how skilled am i how much risk do i want to take and what can the bike do with me on it and that's kind of more the more skilled what is the bike capable of now of those three categories the r takes care of the what it can do you know if you have a bike that has 90 10 street dirt biased tires it can't do much in the dirt you know it's not it's not really a whole lot better than a street bike off-road you know i mean as, as you know i'm sure you've done occasionally you find yourself on a street bike going down a dirt road and and it's okay right. you know you, you can do it you know and the same with an adventure bike that maybe like a the Kawasaki versus adventure bikes, which have 17 inch wheels at both ends. Don't go down dirt roads. And I mean, I've ridden down a dirt road at 70 miles an hour on a versus 650, but it's not a dirt bike. And as soon as you get on anything other than the hardest pack, best quality dirt road, you know, you know it. And so the, the super adventure R brings you that dirt bike quality of handling suspension and well, power, you know, that we'll get into that in a moment, but all, all this power. So it can do whatever you need it to do. If you want it to climb that hill, you know, it's going to go up power wise, as long as you can figure out how to put the power to the ground, because there's no shortage of, of torque. It has over 100 foot pounds of torque. So the R has the power. Uh, it has ultimately the handling and an interesting aspect of a big adventure bike like this is when you sit on the, the super adventure r initially the ktm feels big it's got six gallons of fuel on it in three different fuel tanks around the front uh if you notice there's uh crash bars around the bottom of the engine but they're actually around the bottom fuel tanks so the fuel is held really low which of course as we would know <laughs> lowers the center of gravity helps with the handling as the bike, as the fuel drains, of course, the, the highest tank drains first. So you're, you know, 
the center of gravity actually gets lower as you go. So that's, that's all good. But the bike still feels wide. When you're sitting on it, the, the, the tank is wide. You see those bars, the bars and the, the handlebar is wide. It's a big motorcycle. I mean, this is, you know, I'll get in trouble. It's a man's motorcycle or a big woman's motorcycle because it's, it's, it's substantial. And so when you get on it, you're like, wow, this is a lot of motorcycle. And when you're riding it around, it's wide and you're on the street and you're good. But there's a little piece of magic in there that the KTM engineers did that's really cool. When you stand up, which is a big part of riding off-road, the bike is incredibly narrow. Like through the part where your legs are to the foot pegs, it feels almost like a dirt bike. It's, it's just super narrow. And with that narrow feeling, and your the, the handlebar, the grip position's good, the foot peg position's good. So you feel like you're on pretty close to a traditional dirt bike. So you get that immediate confidence that comes with having ergonomics that work for the, the job at hand. And so even though the bike weighs a lot and then there's a lot of power, it still feels, it, the, the weight is low. It's kind of, kind of oddly enough, it's like a Harley Davidson Cruiser. Yes, those are heavy, but the weight is low and it makes it easier to handle. In the, in the case of the Super Adventure R, the weight is low. Uh, it's, the weight is distributed nicely because of the V-twin with the back cylinder, you know, much closer to the center of gravity. And that's part of the narrowness of the bike. So once you kind of get over the weight and adjust yourself to the power, you go, wow, this bike, the ergonomics are great. I can really ride this off-road. I can go up a bumpy hill. And you know you still have to get traction, and that's always going to be a challenge on any motorcycle. And it's a little bit more of a challenge when you have to drive, you know, the 550-pound motorcycle up with your weight on it. But it's quite impressive. The guy who is in charge of the ergonomics of this bike was a total genius and did a really great job. <laughs> right. So it's great, and and so that gives you more confidence to take. I'll just say bigger risks because you feel like you know I can handle this. I can do this. Oh, I can make that. I can. And, and you can, and you do it and you go, wow, it's pretty cool. And I was fortunate enough and smart enough to not crash it off road because, you know, it's a big crash. Right. So I, but as I rode my level of comfort, my comfort envelope kept expanding. And so I felt better about what I could do and where I could go and how I could ride it and turn it around and what road I might take because, well, what happens if I get, it gets too tough. Am I going to be like stuck? Oh, how am I going to turn this? this mastodon around <laughs> so the super venture r really makes it you feel like okay i can do this and that's that's the best any motorcycle can do now within that off-road realm there's another little trick though that this one will cost you 750 dollars the rally mode for the motor is uh is a, is an optional mode it comes standard with sport street rain and off-road now, the off-road, the standard off-road map, I didn't like it. When I first rode the Super Adventure R off-road, I was kind of not, not, not liking it that much. I didn't like the way the power came on. I didn't feel confident riding the bike. And the ergonomics were good. You know, I discovered that. But when I get on the throttle, it just didn't respond the way I wanted it. And part of it is, was the off-road setting has the traction control for it is a little bit too aggressive in my mind the throttle response is padded down. You know, this is a 
40 whatever horsepower bike you know you're never going to use that off road you, unless you're superman so you're not really going to use 90 horsepower off road so the fact that it knocks it down to that is fine but the throttle response was just kind of doggy so you're off road kind of like when you're like lane splitters you need you see a little gap and you need to get through something you want the motor to respond at least i do and so and this is again a, a more technical situation so the the throttle response really left me wanting in the off-road mode so i was kind of initially disappointed with the bike like man this bike it has this great handling has this great suspension ergonomics are good but man i don't like the way this motor works in off-road you know but okay and then i then i said okay well now it's time to go to rally and you think oh rally i'm gonna get in trouble because those are the race guys <laughs> right but the rally mode really is and also you know with ktm the history of it's like track modes and sport modes that you know when you go into the the high performance mode it's high performance right, you know sure. and it makes the bike jumpy and and difficult to to uh, handle on the ktm 1290s super duke r i don't use the most aggressive mapping on that it's just too much for me you know on on the street if i'm you know it's fine on the on the track but if you're riding for me on a twisty mountain road i need a smoother engagement of the throttle than and less aggressive throttle response than that bike has well in this case that rally mode is like magic it it gives the bike a little bit more power which is not the real big deal the big deal is it gives you instantaneous throttle response and if you ride off road, you're usually pretty good about, you know, throttle control. You know, there's a lot less room for error off road. There is, there's like in both, there's more room and less room. But if you want to ride uh, efficiently off road, you need to have good throttle response because you can't just rely on traction always being there like you usually can on the street. So it's all about dialing in the amount of wheel spin. Okay. But in this case, in, in addition to changing that throttle response to being more direct so when i come up to a rock and i need to blip the throttle and, and maybe leap over the rock or get some momentum to go through a couple of rocks on the way up a hill or something that's now there and the side bonus feature of of rally is that it has it's a little bit overkill but it has nine position traction control and there's two buttons on the left handlebar kind of like the paddle buttons on a uh, Honda DCT, but you can constantly on the fly adjust which to which level of rear wheel spin you have. So the traction control being that fine tunable. I mean, I, I and I used it. You know, I'd be going on certain roads, and I'm like, oh, it's kind of spinning a little bit too much. Pump the traction control up till it was just felt right. When I'd be off road somewhere where it, there wasn't much traction. And the traction control is just constantly involving itself, you know, it, getting its nose involved in what I'm doing. <laughs> right. You know, I would turn the traction control way down and then I could, I could go up where I needed to go up. So they, they get 750. It's part of the tech pack. You know, they get $750 for that, but it's worth it. You definitely, you know, you definitely want to go with that. I mean, there's just no way you want to pass on that feature. If you ride the R off-road, and as I said, if you ride the R off-road seriously, you or don't ride the R off-road seriously, you should be buying the S anyway. So someone can make an argument, as as some will, that the, the rally should be standard with the bike, but it's not. So you know you just have to to budget in that extra seven hundred fifty dollars if you want to, you know, if you want to have that feature. 
so I've kind of run over the, the off-road part of it, which might not as be as interesting to a lot of people that buy adventure bikes, but there are the off-road crowd that do. And as far as the biggest, you know, open class adventure bikes go, there's nothing that touches this. Right. Uh, one thing it doesn't have that I wish it did have was adjustable, electronically adjustable suspension. I don't need semi-active suspension. I, I can get by without that. But if I'm riding off-road, you get into really wide varying sets of circumstances pretty quickly. You can go from going to a rock garden at, at five miles an hour, picking through some tough stuff to up on a dirt road that goes, you can go 100 miles an hour. And so you'd want to be able to adjust the suspension for those different situations quickly. And on this, it's like a traditional dirt bike where, you know, there's, they, they have, it's no tools for the fork. So you could actually, you couldn't do it on the fly, but you could stop and twiddle the compression and rebound damping pretty easily, you know, astride the bike. But if you want to do any of the shock, you got to get off, get tools out, get on your hands and knees, look around for the little slot and turn the knob. So that's going to discourage most people from doing it most of the time. And you're certainly not going to do it as on the fly. So, you know, my wish list for KTM engineers is to please give me the same sort of flexibility in the suspension adjustment as I do in the traction control and rally mode, right. because that would be awesome. If I could adjust, you know, the, the damping boom, 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 as I'm going, man, that would be cool. You're right. Uh, again, again, they don't have to spend the extra money to set up semi-active suspension, but uh, the electronically adjustable suspension would be a huge, huge advantage. Right. Now, the other aspect of the bike is that it's a sport bike because it has that same motor tuned differently, of course, is the Super Duke R and it has a lot of power. Right. So when you ride it on the street as a, as a sport bike, it takes a bit of getting used to, uh, you know, you put in the sport mode and the sport mode is not excessively aggressive. Uh, I think part is just the weight of the bike pads down the power on its own. So even if it had kind of the super aggressive throttle, the, the weight slows things down. Right. So you could, you, this, the sport mode is, a, in my mind, a, a usable mode, whereas the, the street mode, when you're just you know, cruising, it's more of a touring mode if you're just totally relaxed. But you could easily never even use that mode. Uh, in my mind, it's not something that's, that's a necessary mode for you to, to use. So you're in the sport mode, and the bike feels good. And the only thing you have to get used to is the tires. because as these are the most aggressively dirt tires, they're the least aggressively street tires. <laughs> right. So, you know, as you're leaning over, it just doesn't have that feel of a street bike. Now, it's not like knobbies on the street on a, on a dirt, on a dual sport bike, but it's definitely, you know, you feel that not quite glued to the ground feeling. So, you know, it's something you, you adapt to and you adjust yourself to. And it's not like the bike will go and then just let go out of the blue. It gives you plenty of warning, like, hey, hey, Don, that's about as much as you should be pushing us. Okay, okay, it's cool. So, so you're not going to get surprised. You're not going to be like riding around a corner and all of a sudden, boom, the front end goes away in like a split second. Okay. It's not going to be that way. You're going to be warned. And if you ignore the warning, I'm sure it will be happy to, you know, slide down the road. But, you, you know, if you ride smart, you can ride fast and, and it definitely is fast. It has plenty of acceleration. 
except <laughs> this is funny because the bike is kind of just like any bike that does multiple jobs there's going to be these little contradictions along the way right in the sport mode the traction control is not adjustable you can turn it off or you can have it on and when it's on there's a little light that tells you it's on that light is flashing all the time when you're riding hard through the canyon well that sounds annoying it's, it's like every time you get on the gas it's it's kicking in right and sometimes you just see the light you don't really feel it but other times you do feel it and it's a little like you know and just it's a little distracting having that light flashing all the time and you don't know how much how much it's flashing so you know it's like how much traction control is really being being introduced here so you can turn the traction control off and normally i'm the kind of guy who doesn't like that i think traction control is a great thing i don't turn the traction control off on a motorcycle very often but on the ktm 1290 Super Adventure R, I turned it off and it was fine. You know, you got a little slip now and then, you know, and you would, you have to then use your throttle control skills, but it just felt a little bit, it felt to me just a little bit better, a little bit more in control of what I was doing in the twisties, just as the, as the rally mode worked better than off-road. Right. So it's really interesting how these, you know, the they have all these adjustments and on a lot of bikes you have adjustments and you don't really have to do a whole lot you know if you're super picky you fine-tune this and this on the r all these adjustments make a big difference in the experience right off-road the rally was awesome and the off-road mode was kind of like eh, i'm not sure about this <laughs> on the street the sport mode was great except for the traction control and you're like ah, let me turn that off oh i like this more this is good and some people might like the traction control off and it would be great if you had the nine level of traction control for the sport mode, but you don't, you know, you did, you, it's either on or it's off. So uh, it's still a, a great sport bike, you know, in the right hands, you know, you're going to get, be able to keep up with all the craziest of your buddies on a street bike, just because you have plenty of power, plenty of usable power, that big V twin, tons of grunt, you know, it hauls, you know, demands respect because of the weight, it doesn't do any, the engine can't do anything quick you know too quickly to to startle you and or like cause problems it's all very interesting in fact i can say that of all the motorcycles i've tested over the years this is one of the most intriguing by the electronic aids and the way you set them up was has so much of an influence on the perception of the motorcycle and it was like oh wow okay oh i can do this i can do that and it wasn't just off-road it wasn't just on the pavement it was you know whatever i was doing it it behooved me to properly you know, click, click the buttons and set it up the way I want. And one thing I can say, and this is a nice little feature that my buddies at KTM did, there's a little switch on the right handlebar. It's called C1 and C2. But with this, you can do a couple of favorites. So you can, you can click to favorite so it can go to the, you know, so you can quickly go to rally and sport, the two that I would want. So you just click those two buttons to, to rotate between them instead of having to go into the menu and push the buttons and everything. But you can also have it set up to like turn off traction control or, you know, adjust the ABS or any of that. So I, was, I, I didn't mention that before, but off-road, they have, they still have the ABS, uh, but it's very light in the back uh, or it's, it's off in the back and then very light in the front. So ABS was never an issue for me in the rally mode. It was okay. no, no problem at all. <laughs> you have to be a brave guy to want to skid the front wheel off road <laughs> you know <laughs> so but at the same time you don't want it to like 
be engaging as you're going down a hill. You don't want it to engage too soon because then you have no braking. Right. You know, you want it to, to be very, you know, shy about getting involved. Right. For you cool, know, of course. Just like any KTM, because the KTM, you know, in many ways is a real enthusiast brand. You know, they, they're, they're not making the appliance type motorcycles. They're making motorcycles for the people who are the hardest core and really into it. And you can tell the development of this motorcycle that it was guys that are really into it. And they really wanted this bike to appeal to the people who are the most dedicated and most involved buyers. Right. If you're kind of like the hop on and don't do anything, don't push any buttons, I can't be bothered with that, I'm just going to ride it. You're going to probably be, well, you may not be disappointed. Like, well, that's fine. But you're going to be missing out on a lot of the performance of the motorcycle if you don't properly set it up. And that was the one reason that I wanted to have the, the, the electronic suspension adjustment so I could just hit buttons and then adjust it rather than having to go through the rigmarole of hopping off the bike, which, you know, which I didn't really do. You know, I did a couple of times and I was like, oh, this isn't worth the, the hassle. So you just kind of adjust the shock, what works best for you in most cases, and, and it is good enough. Okay. And then the last function that the motorcycle has is touring. Uh, you know, as an adventure bike, it's kind of an ad hoc sport tour. Now, again, if you're really into sport touring and that's your, your, your thing, you're going to get the S version with the street, street bike tires and, right. and go that route. But on this bike, you can still, you could, you could ride across the country on it. You know, it's got plenty of power. It has a short windshield. The windshield, I wasn't a big fan of, but I, you know, I'm sure there's some accessory options. They have a low position where you barely see it. You know, it's, it's mostly just the cowling of the headlight. And then there's a knob, which you can do while you're riding, uh, that ro rolls it up a few inches. But with it down, I kind of actually ended up liking it more because most of the pressure of the air, it kind of came over onto my chest and just kind of held you up. And it, it just felt good. Right. Uh, with, when I put it in, in up, you know, five, nine-ish, when you roll it up, it was kind of hitting my helmet more. So even though it was offering me more protection, I was feeling the wind more because it was, I was fighting it with my head which is not as easy as fighting it with your body. Right. You know, right. So, you know, but that's always going to be that personal thing. It, you know, the, the whole issue of designing windscreens and adjustments and angles and everybody's different, you know, and everybody wants something different out of it. And so for me, it wasn't great for touring. I mean, it's okay. Actually in the low position, it was fine. You know, if you're feeling a lot of wind, but you're feeling it in a managed and not buffeting way, just kind of, kind of there right so and and i don't have to get into the power the bike has plenty of power if you need to pass somebody at high speed boom you just twist the throttle up to shift down but if you do shift down you do not have to use the clutch because it has an awesome quick shifter and you know it, as we know with twins the quick shifters can be a little bit tricky sure and, and you know sometimes not as smooth but this was to me pretty smooth and, and i loved it off-road quick shifters off-road or are, are they're starting to get involved in that in in the more real off-road bikes where they're having the, at least the up quick shifting because it's just such a great feature and i think a lot of people still haven't quite warmed up to it but boy if you get a bike and you get used to it it's great and one thing that allowed ktm to do was tuck in the shift lever a bit shift lever is not as easily accessible as you might expect but it doesn't take much to shift it. You just have to kind of right. nudge it and it shifts. 
So by tucking it in, if you fall, you don't break a shift lever, which you don't want to do out in the middle of nowhere <laughs> because you might be in a low gear and then you're going to have to putt all the way home or you're going to be in a high gear and you're going to be like slipping the clutch and burning the clutch out eventually. Right. So that was like, again, another one of those things where you have those engineers that, that go that little tiny bit extra and say, oh yeah, well, we have the quick shifter on here. It works really good. We can tuck that lever in a little bit more and make it a little bit less likely to get broken. Right. Smart. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So as I said, this motorcycle is really intriguing, fascinating, fun to ride, fun to test, fun to learn about motorcycle. And you're constantly rewarded as you fine tune its behavior. Okay. And so it's, it's cool. It's cool. And, you know, you you got to be, you know, the big dog and be willing to, you know, work with the fact that it's a big motorcycle, weighs, you know, 524 pounds. When you throw yourself on it, you know, you're in the 700 pound range. And uh, yeah, it, but it has the, you know, the WP suspension that gets it done, although not electronically adjustable, has the wheel set, the awesome Bridgestone tires, the incredibly torquey motor, the highly adjustable electronics. There's a lot there to like about the motorcycle. Wow, that's really awesome. It sounds great. Well, thank you. I appreciate hearing about it. It sounds unbelievable. Very impressive. Like I said, very few motorcycles, you kind of feel that way about the testing of it. Right. You know, you just like it. Go, oh, this is great. Because, you know, we've talked about this before, you and I, how we're old school when none of this stuff was adjustable anyway. So you just brought it around whatever, you know, yeah. was handed to you. Yeah. But in this case, it really pays to like, you notice the problem and you go, oh yeah, I can fix this. Well, that's good. <laughs> okay. That's absolutely terrific. Hey, thanks a lot, Don. I really appreciate it. All right. In this second segment, I chat with Richard Hatfield, CEO of Lightning Motorcycles. This Silicon Valley-based manufacturer was founded in 2006, and having racked up several notable race victories, <laughs> including the Pikes Peak in 2013 with the late Carlin Dunn on board, Lightning have certainly dominated in racing terms. In another first, Lightning has just announced a new rapid charging battery technology, and that may well bring electric motorcycles into becoming real-world practical transport. <laughs> I guess we'll see. Yeah, so I actually got into electric motorcycles by uh, first getting pulled into electric cars back in 1996 and seven. A group of friends were building an electric Porsche for a, a competition that was being held in Phoenix. And at the time I was um, racing uh, open wheel uh, SCCA Formula Mazdas. And uh, they asked me if, if I would get involved with it and I got involved and just got really fascinated with uh, all of the electric drive system. And, uh, you know, a number of years later, uh, I, um, found a source for some early iron phosphate and lithium batteries and uh, talked uh, a friend of mine into selling me his, uh, his, his track R1 with a blown engine and uh, put the batteries in an in industrial um, VFD drive in, in the uh, R1 and, and uh, you know, built the, the first uh, uh, lithium uh, sport bike. That's really that's really cool. I I rode the uh, LS two eighteen. Do you call it or the two one eight? 
Two, yeah, the two eighteen. Yes, yeah, the two eighteen. Yeah, I rode that at Barton Willow a, a few years ago, and at the time you were making these sort of outrageous claims of horsepower and torque and all of these things. And well, I admit I was a bit of a skeptic, but climbed on board, did a did a bunch of laps, and I was very impressed. And it was not so much. Uh, you know the sort of the crazy horsepower and all that but actually it was the the software controller gave it really good delivery and you mated it with these incredible you know cycle parts you know all in suspension all top of the line stuff so you really made a motorcycle that worked very very well and uh that must have been quite a battle getting to that point wasn't it it, it was um yeah it just being able to package you know, everything from a high power, you know, battery pack, uh, controller, motor, and, you know, package it, get the, the, the weight, you know, close to where it needs to be, the, the balance. Um, you know, good motorcycle components um, are, you know, as you know, uh, available. And there's a, a good understanding of, you know, suspension geometry and, and weight and balance. So we, you know, we were able to draw on all of that. But, uh, you know, packaging everything we needed to and get the weight as, as down as far as we could. And, you know, when you start making quite a bit of power, there's a, there's a lot of engineering around thermal management as well. I mean, it's, it's one thing to, you know, make, uh, you know, a, a lot of power and go down a, a drag strip, but uh, to do that, you know, for lap after lap on a road race track and, and uh, you know, uh, do a fast charge and get back out and do it again. That's uh, another level of, of challenge. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. <laughs> you you certainly, like I say, I mean, I I am testament to to the fact that that, that it absolutely you have pulled that off. It was it was very impressive. The motorcycle actually, I loved it. It was really good. Um, and and subsequently to that, that was a few years ago. You've now brought out the uh, the strike, haven't you? Which I I believe takes the the LS two eighteen is what a, like an almost forty thousand dollar bike, and the strike is now about a twenty thousand dollar bike. Well, what's the differences between those two? So when we first developed the the LS two eighteen, you know, there the, the idea was let's not really worry about what things cost. Let's try to build the the best electric motorcycle that we can. Uh, when we and so that was kind of following the Tesla roadmap. You know, they came out with the the Roadster originally, and right, you know, it was you know it was expensive and but you know had exciting performance and helped to build uh, an awareness of what was possible. Sure. So that was re really our goal with the the two eighteen when we started on the project for the strike the idea was okay we we know now that we can build you know a, an electric motorcycle that's exciting to ride let's see if we can build one that can compete in in price as well as in you know rider experience and performance so we we really looked at every component when we developed it um and you know how could we deliver you know, that performance, not the 218 level of performance, but a level of performance that would be exciting for, you know, a lot of the, the motorcycle uh, uh, community and do it at a price that is competitive. So, again, if we think of that kind of, uh, you know, in Tesla terms, 
it was the the model three you know still a, a good exciting vehicle but you know within the price range of a lot of other similar vehicles yeah i mean actually in terms of sort of modern sport bike it's right in the right in there you know so i i haven't ridden the strike i i assume that it it works just as well as the uh, as the ls218 so I guess the the elephant in the room at the moment, which hopefully you're able to to address, is are you able to sort of ramp up production of these things and and really start selling them? Do you think there is? So, you know, the the again, that's a kind of ne- another level of uh, of engineering and, and business challenge. So, you know, we've been hand building and in fairly low volumes the strike and the 218 you know steadily now right um before covid hit we opened a a factory in china to try to ramp up production and and uh, be competitive price-wise wow when covid covid hit that uh, that plant got locked down and uh we've never been able to reopen it so uh, oh. the, the goal now, uh, what we're going out to is to uh, uh, raise a, a round of capital here in the U.S. and and uh, do all of our production here in the U.S. Oh, that's interesting. Interesting. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah, COVID. COVID, oh, my God. I mean, it just it killed so much staff. And but at the same time, I guess if there's a sort of a silver lining, it it in some ways has opened up opportunities because it's forced us to do things a little differently perhaps but my problem with electric motorcycles everybody's problem has always been charging time we've you know it's like well these things work really well they're great we all recognize that yes they're probably the future this is all good stuff but they're hopelessly impractical for the real world because you know if you want to go any kind of distance you're not able to um and obviously tesla is sort of um, are, are gradually addressing that but in the in the motorcycle world it really hasn't happened as yet and and you came out with an announcement recently about this uh forgive me if i'm wrong this combined charging system this ccs that will literally change that game it, 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 can you tell us a little bit more about that and 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 if this is a sort of a real world thing and, or is it just something you hope to incorporate? I mean, I'm fascinated to hear about this because it will really change the electric motorcycle world. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that we've really focused on, you know, during COVID and, you know, I, I don't want to keep going back to that, but COVID was a, <laughs> a major bump in the, in the road for us. Oh, yeah. We, we lost uh, a number of employees and the, the building that we had in San Jose, um, we were leasing from uh, from a, a business that got hit, you know, really hard with COVID, and they were forced to, you know, liquidate a lot of assets. So the the building was sold, and we had to scramble and find another place and move all of our machines and and assembly, which you know we were able to do. But uh, in in the process, while we were, you know, we didn't have a the, the same level of workforce and the, the um, you know, dealing with with all the other impact, we really started looking at, you know, what can we do to to drive technology forward? And because we've had some success in racing with land speed records, and you know, the the FIM championship race in Le Mans and the Pikes Peak, 
Um, we've had good good access to uh, some just great engineers in all of the various disciplines that that we need to draw on for electric motorcycles. And what one of them, uh, you know, a, a two or three year relationship we've had is with a, a silicon anode battery company that's really been focusing on uh, fast charge. Um, they're they're able to cycle the batteries. Um, in charging in you know six or seven minutes, um, and also they've uh, done something that's that's pretty impressive. They've been able to keep the cycle life uh, at a reasonable level and have good energy density and, and and good power. So you know the power gives us the you know the the acceleration, the the torque, the horsepower. What you know what. Um, makes a, a motorcycle fun in, in some ways. And then the high energy density uh, gives us the range. So the uh, uh, prototypes that we built with our batteries will go, you know, 150 to 170 miles at 70 miles an hour on, on the freeway, uh, which is, um, you know, pretty far for an electric motorcycle. I'm not aware of, of anyone else at this point that has, uh, you know, real-world electric motorcycles that will will go that far at, at 70 miles an hour. And then the, the big game changer is, you know, currently we're able to uh, recharge the bike to over 130 miles range in under 10 minutes. So that's uh, that's been an interesting challenge as well because, you know, it, it's not only the batteries that need to be able to take that. So we're, you know, we're charging a a battery pack at four to 500 amps. There's uh, wow. roughly a 170 horsepower worth of electricity going into the battery. And, you know, we're, we're actually, we've, we've crossed over this boundary where the sustained power during charge going into the battery is more than the power that the bike can use coming out of the battery. So uh, all of the thermal management stuff that we did to get a bike to, you know, perform at you know, 1,000 cc gas uh, bike levels on a road race track. Now we have to actually take those, those thermal management uh, challenges to another level because we're, we're sustaining that for, you know, uh, you know, 10 minutes at a time. So e everything from the plug to the cables, to the fuses, to the contactors, and, you know, uh, everything needs to be addressed to, to keep it within safe thermal limits. So how, how exactly does this, or, I mean, without getting too technical from a layman's point of view, how does this fast charging work? So we're, we're able to use the level three chargers that uh, the cars use. DC charging, isn't it? Yes, it is, yeah. Okay. So, you know, something that would, you know, would charge, uh, you know, a, a Porsche Taycan in, in, you know, half an hour, um, will that sense the battery pack and the energy that's required for a motorcycle is a fraction of what's required for a car, that the same charging network that will charge a car in half an hour to an hour or over an hour right. allows us to, to charge the bike in, you know, in 10 minutes. Right. I, I do actually believe that I have some experience. I've owned two electric cars and I had a level two charger installed at my house. The level two is the 220 volt um, sort of fast charger compared to just the normal level 110 volt, you know, sort of ordinary household outlet thing. 
and that that worked very well but just for grins i went to the uh, the thousand oaks mall where they had a couple of dc chargers and i thought oh, you know let's go and see how how fast this thing really is so i you know i put in my credit card and paid my 20 bucks or whatever it was and i plugged in the dc went into the mall got a, got myself a starbucks and i was probably i'm trying to guess i maybe 20 minutes and i came out and the car was fully charged it was i was like wow that it was really impressive so it wasn't fully empty when i when i when i arrived but it was you know um but it was definitely very fast so like you say with a with a motorcycle that obviously carries a lot less less battery power a lot less weight i could see that 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 could definitely work but i mean this combined charging system is more than just straight dc fast charging isn't it it's becoming the standard now around the world it's it's um, replaced or it's, it's certainly scaling a lot faster than the former dc which was chatomo and um Okay. It's available at, at higher powers. So the, the combined charging standard has the both the level two and the level three uh, plugs so that, you know, if you have level two available, you can do a slower level two charge. And if you, um, you know, are traveling and you have level three available, you can charge at a, at a much higher rate. And this is, you know, with cars, um, this has really become uh, uh, a very competitive area. How fast can you charge a car? For sure. Um, and so these, these level three CCS chargers, the majority of them are 50 kilowatts. So, you know, that will give something close to, you know, a hundred amp charge. And um, there, there are more and more now that are 150 kilowatts. So that, that will provide uh, you know, something close to a 300 amp charge. And because of a lot of the, uh, the, the faster charging vehicles that are out there, like the, the Porsche Taycan, um, there are 350 kilowatt CCS chargers. So that allows us to charge at four to 500 amps. And, you know, when you start thinking about three, 400 volt battery pack with, you know, four or 500 amps coming in, I mean, that's, that's a lot of power. Wow. And for the, the batteries to be able to, you know, absorb all of that energy and stay within thermal limits and voltage limits. I mean, it, it really, you know, it really is a game changer from my perspective, the, the last real, you know, one of the last, you know, real objections people have to electric motorcycles is, you know, I, I don't want to wait 45 minutes an hour. You know, I think most of the other, uh, you know, fast DC charge motorcycles are in that you know, close to an hour range, uh, give or take a little bit. And if you can pull in, plug in, and 10 minutes later, you know, be back up to 80%. Um, that's, that's not, uh, that's not the same level of inconvenience as waiting an hour. For sure. Yeah. So, so if I heard you correctly, it sounds as though this technology already exists and is starting to be used in the car charging world. Not, not that I'm aware. I'm not, I'm not aware of anyone that has um, the, the same type of silicon anode batteries that will charge at this rate in cars. The, there are other batteries that will charge, you know, in, you know, fast, you know, half an hour, 25 minutes. 
but uh, I'm not aware of anything out there yet um, that's using this level of technology to charge in 10 minutes. Okay. But, but you, it, it, I mean, clearly if it, if it works that well, then it's just a matter of time until the car world starts to, starts to use it. Agreed. Yeah. 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 That's uh that's very interesting because it's going to take a while for some infrastructure to come along, but yeah, it would mean that people could actually use these motorcycles for traveling distances other than just using them for a sort of a quick commute or, or, or a, you know, local around town thing where they're in range of their home. Yeah, from from our perspective, the infrastructure already exists to charge our bikes, you know, where we can get from, you know, 20% to 80% in 10 minutes there. Uh, you know, when, when we look at the EV charger maps, um, the, uh, you know, we need the uh, 100, 150 kilowatt chargers to, to charge at that level. And we can pretty much go across the country. We could go from Canada to San Diego. Uh, that that infrastructure is there and it's getting uh, these higher power CCS chargers are being added at a, at a very high rate. But, um, you know, there, there are a number of people that are, are doing these runs now across the country. We recently did uh, a run from uh, the Golden Gate Bridge to the Coronado Bridge in, in San Diego and, you know, in, in a, a day using the fast charge network. We're going to do one uh, shortly running from California to Florida uh, when we see a good weather window to do it. But, um, you know, I, I don't think this is something that is going to come sometime in the future. I think it's, you know, there are certainly holes where you don't have uh, the high power uh, CCS, but if you have a, you know, 160 mile range motorcycle, that's uh, not too many places you can't go at this point and still use uh, and, and not find a, a high power charger that's 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 great so that's so it's, this is real world stuff i mean this is actually here and and here now yes so the 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 extra range of of, of your motorcycle presumably that comes from sort of motor efficiency rather than just simply carrying a lot more batteries that that would make the bike a lot heavier than any competitors out there is, is that correct or well it, it comes from a, a number of things so one is the energy density of the batteries, the amount of kilowatt hours per kilogram of battery is, is, is very high on these silicon cells. Uh, so that's allowing us to take a standard strike that would have a nominal 20 kilowatt hour battery in it and put a 24 kilowatt hour battery in it without changing you know, any, of the, any of the packaging. Okay. So that's about a 20% gain there. The, the other thing is we've, we did quite a bit of CFD modeling, um, you know, on the strike to to try to make it as aerodynamic as as we could, but sure. still maintain that that sport bike aesthetic that that we're targeting. Uh, and then we uh, actually took the bike in clay to a, a wind tunnel and uh, did some uh, additional modifications to it in the wind tunnel to improve it. Um, the motor that we have is, is a very, very high efficiency, high power density motor, so that helps a lot. And then we have a, a single step gear reduction from the motor to the rear wheel. And every time you uh, have a gear reduction, you lose a certain amount of, of energy and power and, and decrease efficiency. So oh. being able to do it in a, in a single step um, as opposed to you know multi-step that a lot of the other bikes use 
uh, also helps. So, you know, our, our focus from the beginning and starting the, the company was technology first. You know, how do we how do we take what's available? How do we build those relationships? And how do we look at first principles and try to make a you know a bike for customers that delivers what uh, uh, other companies that don't take that approach, you know, aren't currently delivering. Right. Uh, so this technology is is now in, included on the bikes that um, you're getting ready to deliver now? Or? The, the bikes that will deliver uh, early in 2023, some of those bikes that customers can opt for will have that technology in it. It won't be in every bike yet. Um, you know, anytime there's a new technology, um, you know, we have to, uh, you know, we have to do um, our, our in-house testing, which we've been doing. We rely on the battery companies, you know, lab testing. Um, and then we uh, go out to consumers and, and deliver a certain number of bikes with the technology. And so that, that requires a, a number of moving parts, right? So we have the, the battery technology company that needs to be able to, you know, stand behind the, the batteries. Um, uh, we have to stand behind the batteries. Um, so it, it's not, uh, we're, we're not at this point uh, going to ship every bike with it, uh, but it's something that customers will be able to, uh, to choose. Okay. Is it a, is there an extra cost for, for this on, on bikes that come with it? There, there will be an extra cost. Yes. Okay. Okay, so that, that that's fair enough. So um, if somebody feels that they'll use this technology, then they can buy it as an option. And if they feel that they won't need it, then there's no point in the expense. Exactly. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, um, that is that's great. Uh, these uh, the silica batteries that you you've been talking about are these sort of proprietary batteries, or are these batteries that you're? I'm sure you obviously you don't manufacture your own batteries, so. Presumably, these batteries that could start making their way onto other vehicles as well. They are. So the company that, that developed the technology that we're currently using and testing, um, they're a, a technology licensing company. So we've negotiated a, a license um, with them to be able to go to uh, uh, our cell manufacturer and have cells produced. So, um, you know, it, it, there is... Um, th there's a period of time that's required uh, when you go to a new manufacturer to work with the technology company to get all the, uh, you know, all the processes worked out to be able to do it consistently and in volume. Um, but so, yeah, the, the technology will be available for other people. Um, I, I think because of, of our approach, we have a head start. Right. Okay. So that's that's really really very exciting. So what what do you think is sort of the next move for Lightning? Is there have you got new models you know planned or in the pipeline, or are you just really trying to to you know solidify what you've got? Yeah. So the, there's a number of things that we're working on. Um, one is we have uh, a 2023 model we'll be announcing uh, that is lighter and has more power in the as a sport bike, we also have a, an adventure bike uh, version based on the, uh, our basic platform that, that we'll be uh, showing and announcing. Uh, 
And then we have a more standard, you know, naked type uh, bike that that we'll be producing. So, right. Um, the, the next steps are, you know, we go out to uh, our investors in the capital markets and raise some additional capital and and uh, start ramping up production. We we see a lot of demand for the bike. Um, sure. We think that the technology is is right. We think it's uh, mature enough, and now it's a uh, the time to ramp up and, and uh, you know, go after our share of the market. Yeah, good for you. Good for you. <laughs> I, I have to ask you, I've, you know, seen and, and heard a little bit of criticism about, you know, d deliveries and, you know, that kind of stuff. Do you feel like that is, I'm sure there's a lot of stuff that is down to COVID and supply chains and all kinds of things. Um, so I'm, I'm sure people are prepared to cut a bit of slack, but are you, are you able to address that a little bit? You think you maybe got past that? Yeah. So we we, we did we did have some delays when we were relocating the factory. Right. Um, we went out to everyone who had a deposit uh, on the um, bike that if they wanted their deposit, we would return it and and keep them on the list. We did that. Um, you know, unfortunately, there have been some of the people involved with uh, some of the competitors, one in particular, who have uh, used the internet to constantly troll and circulate false information. And I'm, I'm not sure why it's all based around one brand. Um, you know, the majority of the brands have, have been pretty supportive and inclusive of each other, but there's one group that their approach, uh, not the company specifically, but uh, you know, their enthusiast group have, uh, created websites just basically to circulate false information and troll. And um, it's, I, I don't understand it. It's unfortunate. It's a, we're, we're early on in all of this and, and there's market available for everybody. Okay. Personally, like, like I say, I'm in a fairly, uh, fairly rarefied position in as much as I've actually ridden your motorcycle and and was in a position to judge it for what it was. I had no preconceived notions of it. Um, if anything, I was a little skeptical. And the first lap, I was like, okay, this is real. And I spent, from memory, I spent a lot of the day on it and really was very impressed. Yeah, and, and thanks for you know having me on your podcast and, and testing the bike. And we're, we're very eager to have you, uh, you know, ride the new bikes. To be perfectly honest with you, the the riding of the bike is not going to tell me too much in as much as I, I can take whatever bike it is and ride it around a bit and go, yeah, it works great. Of course it does. I mean, we all know it's going to work great. The problems that electric power has is essentially lack of infrastructure and, and amount of time it takes to charge. Like, you know, And the fact that you're addressing that with this CCS to me is really is the story because that's the sort of the next obstacle that, that we have to get past. So I, I think that's, that's the thing. I'd be, I'd be much more interested in meeting you somewhere, riding around on a bike for a bit, um, parking it up at a charger and then going inside, having a, you know, a coffee and coming out 10 minutes later and finding that it's fully charged and then riding off. I don't, I don't, I don't want to make it sound like I don't believe you, but you know, listeners and readers, readers and audience are all sitting there sort of rolling their eyes going, yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. But if we can actually sort of show them video proof and go, Hey, here we are. And there it is. 
I think that that'll kind of convert the naysayers. Well, what do they say? Ex extraordinary claims re require extraordinary proof. So, <laughs> right. <laughs> Maybe if it works for you, we could meet at the grapevine. You know, there there's a big um, CCS charging bank there. We could write it down and have it fairly well depleted. You could write it around some and we'll, we'll plug it in, grab a Starbucks and come back out and do another ride. That's relatively local for us. I mean, we're about maybe an hour away from that. So we, we wouldn't, need, wouldn't need much notice for that. So yeah, so yeah, let me know and we'll buzz out and meet you and record it. It sounds great. Okay, very good. All right. Hey, thanks. I really appreciate it, Richard. And I'll look forward to seeing you again soon. Yeah, thanks for having me on your show.